This is Working the Beat. It is Wednesday night, July 1st, 2020. I'm Kevin Cooney along with Mike Kern. Glad you could join us on this holiday week. We feels like a Thursday night, to be honest. It feels like we're getting set to go into a holiday weekend. A lot of people having uh, Friday off as the legal holiday. And... Um, so we decided we're going to do a, you know, we're going to do a, a, a little more relaxed show than we have been doing. Uh, and we're going to have our, I'll introduce our guest in a minute. Our thanks to the, our friends at the last out media network. They're uh, broadcasting this uh, podcast on their network. Give them a, a, a look up if you can. And uh, Michael, how are you? It looks like you were on the golf course today. Yeah, I was. How was hey, it? Does this mean people? Can people see me because we're live on Facebook? Yes, we are. Yes, you can. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. Yeah. So I don't pick my that, nose or something. Well, you're going to do that anyway, so it doesn't matter. Our guest tonight is <laughs> our guest tonight is the fine columnist from the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, who's been on a roll lately. He, his column about the, the, the demise of baseball a couple weeks ago was outstanding. Uh, his one on Bill Belichick last week was outstanding. He always does outstanding columns. He's a friend of the program. He is actually, I think, the the guest we've had on the most in the history of this program. It's Mike Silski. Christ, don't tell him that. That's not a good thing. <laughs> it's Mike Silski. Mike, how are you? Thank you for going, Mike. He, he makes it sound like when you write good columns, like that it's something we should like stand out. Don't you write them all the time? Isn't that the goal? I hope. I hope. Yeah. You know, they're not going to get a winner every time. I just want to know if we're going to continue to play the Hooters in the background of this entire episode, because that would be oh, that'd be awesome. You I can would hear like that? To, it would be like Live Aid in Philly in 1985. <laughs> you know, somebody actually said we could have one of the band members from the Hooters on, who, who they know them personally, and they would be willing to come on this program. We could do a whole 80s Philly rock show. We could get the Hooters. We get Tommy Conwell and the Young Rumblers. Um, you know, there's, I mean, the possibilities are endless. Mike, how many of those people did you recognize, Kern? None. Okay. Uh, no, I recognize, I recognize the name sometimes. Hall and Oates. Those. We could get Hall and Oates to come back. That'd be great. Hall and Oates, yeah. But I'm just saying, I like people will say bands' names. And I might have seen them in a club sometime. But that, you know, that wasn't me necessarily. That's okay. It doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be. And, you know, the, you know they, look, the Hooters, are, the Hooters are Philadelphia. I mean, that is the thing. The Hooters were like, when I was growing up, the Hooters were Philadelphia. They, they had a big hit and they never had another one. That's the Hooters. That's Philadelphia. No, no, they had two. <laughs> so here's the question. Would I'm you sorry, rather too. be a band that was a one-hit wonder? Because people make fun of bands that only had one hit. And if, I'm like, No. I'll take that one really good hit or that one, you know, that makes me famous or something, and it, that puts me one ahead of most of the world. Let me clarify. They did have two hits. Yes, they did. And we they, danced. Well, day by day, and then we had, danced. They had a really popular album, Nervous Night, that yeah. had three songs that got major airplay, uh, you know, Day by Day, and, and we danced, and All You Zombies. Yeah. And then after that. See, you know, I recognize the songs. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know who I just didn't know who sang. Yeah. To current to, to current's point, though, Don McLean, who did American Pie. Right. He got asked one time. I, I don't know if this story's true or not, but if it isn't, it should be. He got asked one time, Don, what does that song mean? You know, it's this nine minute song, apparently all about the history of rock and roll. What does that song mean? And McLean said, it means I don't have to work for the rest of my life. <laughs> and, and that is the only correct answer. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Did he also and they caught the last train for the coast? I was just mm-hmm. gonna I was just gonna say he also did what? Starry Starry Night? Yeah, Vincent. Yeah, Vincent. Yeah. Dreidel. Dreidel, right? Dreidel. There's another song. Uh, feel like a spinning top or Okay. I, I thought that was yeah, I'm, had, I'm, I'm I mean, pulling this. I'm pulling. We need, we need a Kern karaoke night on this podcast. Oh, this would be awesome. All right, I'll my, tell you what, if we did Motown and all that crap, I would run you guys out of the building. No kidding, <laughs> I don't doubt that. All right, well, let, let's start. Let's start with the news of the day, which is the National Football League. They're starting to run signs up that they know they're not going to be able to start on time. And the two preseason games being eliminated, which is not a big deal because they're going to eliminate two of them next year anyway, Mike. Mm-hmm. But this is, to me, a sign that they know they can't proceed as business as usual going forward. Would you agree with that? Look, they've done a great job of presenting themselves as going through business as it would normally be. But nobody can. Um, I was talking about this with somebody earlier tonight that um, – you know, I finished, I was on a, a Zoom call earlier today with Brett Brown with a bunch of media members, and we were talking about what the Sixers are going to do in the bubble. And, you know, I ended up writing about what Shake Milton could bring if they put him in the starting lineup and all this stuff. And I filed the column and I thought, what did I do? What, what is the guarantee that Shake Milton's role in the Sixers is going to matter? Um, exactly. Because nobody has any idea what is ahead. I think these leagues are going to start. Um, I don't know where they're going to end up, if they're even going to finish. And I think that goes for the NFL too, Kevin, to your point. Um, yeah, they were going to get rid of two preseason, preseason games anyway, but you know, the, the hope always was, has been that they were going to start the year on time and there's no guarantee that's going to happen. Do you read anything into the fact, uh, sorry, Mike, uh, uh, right. do, do you read anything into the fact of, I think it's what the second and third they kept, and the first and fourth, they lopped off. That's weird to me because in fourth are generally the the ones that you guys get their shot. You know, you, you backups and and you know guys on the practice squad they get the longest run in those games. Um, and you're going to need more players, I would think. You know, my my colleague and our friend Marcus Hayes wrote the other day that um, these these teams in these leagues should think about expanding their rosters to prepare themselves and gird themselves for potentially losing players to the virus. And that's the part of it I don't get is, you know, the, the fourth preseason game is when you figure out that like, oh yeah, Paul Turner can be the fourth or fifth wide receiver on a, on a mediocre to bad Eagles team. And so let's keep them. Um, well, you kind of have to approach the entire season that way. Mike. Yeah. Th- there isn't one sports entity, Mike, Kevin, that can say right now what they're going to do, but they keep telling us, they, they, this is what bugs me. They keep telling you we're doing this, we're doing this, and then the NBA commissioner will come out and say, well, geez, if the coronavirus hits really bad, well, of course if it's really bad. But nobody has come out and told us what the parameters of that is. Like how many guys have to test positive on the Eagles before the Eagles can't play football that week? Nobody has said that. At least I haven't seen it. They got 150-page booklets they put out. Why won't somebody, a college team, a college league, the NBA come out and say, hey, this is our, our line of demarcation here. If we hit this point, because nobody knows. So we're all going to be flying blind. And, you know, we, we could be in the middle of August and the NBA could be playing. And four Sixers t- will be like, well, what does that mean? You know, that, that's what really bugs me about all this is they're all going forward. They're all hoping for the best. We're all hoping for the best. But just tell me 
what the point is where we can't do it anymore. So at least we're prepared for that. Celsius. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know what the standard is, right? I mean, Mike's, Mike's point is correct. And I think the word that isn't being used often enough in, in talking about specifically sports situation with the virus is lawsuit. That's what these leagues are afraid of. They are afraid of having a player or a coach or a fan or a assistant to the assistant general manager sue them because they got the virus while they were in an arena or in a stadium or whatever the case may be. That's what's underpinning all of this. Are there any and, waivers involved, Mike, at all? Yeah, I'm like, sure there are, are but well, that's, but yeah. I and mean, I, and, and Mike and I can answer this because I'm assuming you got the same email I did today. For us to cover Major League Baseball this year, we have to sign a waiver. We yeah, have right. been okay. we had a waiver put in our email through the BBWA that okay. um, we have to sign, which basically says that I can't sue if I get sick. And furthermore, my my wife, my mom, nobody else in my family could. And yeah. you know, if you're not if you're going to be there 29, 30 games, and you think that's part of the deal, you have no choice but to pretty much sign it for. People like Mike and I, who may be there five or six times while this is all going on, you think. Yeah, but you do. But here's the thing, Kev. Like, and, and I don't know the answer to this question. How much risk are we in the media really putting ourselves at? Right. That's what I don't know. You know, I mean. You're at risk of the other sports writers. That's it. At this yeah, point. With the way like it the is. The athletes are at a, are a much higher risk. All it takes is one person and, he, and even then, like, how much risk are they at, really? Like, I haven't sat down. I'm not suggesting the virus isn't serious. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is that it, is, it, are we, are, what is the calculated risk we're taking here? You know, we're seeing these numbers come back from college football teams where, you know, I think one earlier tonight, Oklahoma State had, you know, 10 or 15 players who, who had or mm-hmm. had already had it or had tested positive. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know what the risk reward is in this. Um, you know, I haven't crunched the numbers. If you take, you know, it, we, we've adjusted how we live our lives. We've adjusted how certain institutions and entities deal with this. We know that we shouldn't lock people in nursing homes, for instance, um, you know, and have the virus cut a swath through New York state and New Jersey, um, and just wipe people out for no good reason. Um, you know, we're not doing that now, but how much does that really mitigate the risk of a 45-year-old sports writer who's got to go sit in the press box at Citizens Bank Park or Bryce Harper who's got to go stand in right field at Citizens Bank Park? I don't know the answer to that. But do you guys, are you going to talk to your families? I mean, you know, if, if you're going there, Mike, and let's say that there's a 1% chance. I don't know. I'm just throwing a number out. Yeah. But that 1% chance, you know, if, if your children were to get sick or your, somebody in your family were to get sick or you were to get sick, you know, is it worth it? I, and I don't have a good answer because now that's not my job, so I don't have to worry about that. But, I mean, it just seems like we're saying in all these circumstances, whether it's going to the beach, going here, go, it's a, you know, there's a risk. We know, But then when people get sick, it's like, oh, my God, why didn't I think it a risk, you know? Yeah. I don't think anybody knows going to these stadiums who's going to be subjected to what. No, you're right, Mike. And, and I keep going back to the fact that I was at the Flyers Bruins game on March 11th or 12th, whenever right. it was, um, right before the entire, per, everybody's perspective on this whole thing shifted that night that the, the Wells Fargo center was sold out. 
Nobody seemed to care about the virus. It was Flyers Bruins, big game. Flyers are back. They've won nine in a row. I was in the press box. I went to the bathroom half a dozen to a dozen times to wash my hands. You know, I disinfected, I Purell, I did everything I needed to do. Um, you know, now all our perspectives have changed on this. So what do we do now? You know, and, and one thing I take into consideration, to be quite honest, when you mentioned the 1% chance, if, if I'm going to write about a Phillies game, for instance, I'm going to go to the Phillies game. Mm-hmm. Even if all I get is interviewing with interviewing Joe Girardi on Zoom or Bryce Harper on Zoom from the ballpark, because it's very important to me in what I do to maintain the precedent that we have to be there. Yeah, right. I don't want to give these franchises the opportunity to tell us we don't need you there. And right. for me personally, I'm willing to take that risk because it's part of my job. If, mm-hmm. if, if they shut me out, I don't, I'm not sure I want to do the job anymore because it's not the job that we should be doing. And I'll, um, I'll go from a different end. Um, diabetic. I have mm-hmm. high blood pressure. I'm not in the best of shape, but the question is you can't live life. You can't live life in, in your shell. You have to be able to go do things for work, for whatever. So would I, you know, I'll consult with my wife. I'll consult with my doctor. Um, I will take all the necessary precautions of mask and sanitizer and all that. I probably will go, but it's something that makes you think. You have to think about all the risk and all the choices and whether this is a needless choice or not. It's a risk or reward. You know, again, it's not my full-time job anymore. So that's part of the reason why I can have that little bit of hesitancy to see if I'm going to do it as opposed to somebody like Mike. I said Mike's there five or six. I'm exaggerating. Mike's going to be there, I know, I'm sure, you know, a, a good amount. I'm not there every night, so I don't know, you know. But I think it's like, Kevin, like with the players, if certain players who don't want to go. Right. We've seen players who say there's going to be certain writers or certain media members sure. that for whatever the reasons, whether it's like your reasons or, or maybe they have four kids at home or – I don't know. Mike, I, I, Mike say, I think the bigger... I just can't go. Mike, I think the bigger issue is, and I'll take the bubble in Orlando. How many papers are really going to send their writers to Orlando if all you're going to get is a Zoom call? I'm, well, I think we're sending Keith Pompey. Okay. Um, you know, and, and I guess, I would guess, I, I don't know this for certain, this is just rank speculation on my part, but part of the reason we can is that we haven't spent the money over the last four months on travel and expenses that we normally would have, you know, I, if, I mean, it wouldn't have been unheard of for me to have spent all of May and part of June following the flyers around, mm-hmm. you know, from Boston to Toronto to who knows where, you know, if they had made a deep run. Um, will, will Sam go with the flyers, Mike? I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. They, don't, um, they don't officially even have a spot yet. Although yeah, we're going to talk about yeah. that in a minute. Um, you know, and I can see both sides. I know you guys had, you know, Pat McClune and Tom Shredenshek on a couple of weeks back talking about the give and take and, and making these choices. And it's really hard, but I mean, I feel very strongly that we should go just because, and, and again, I'm different in that situation. Like I'm a pretty healthy 45 year old guy. Um, I wear a mask every time I go out, I wash my hands, you know, I do all the things I'm supposed to do. Um, so I'll take that chance because I know I, I trust myself and I've, I know how I've lived over the last four months to know that I'm, I'm pretty low risk. I think, but let's admit that the NBA, and, the wait, NBA, wait a minute, Kevin, Kevin, sorry. does Keith have to do a 14 day quarantine if he goes down there? 
the NBA, the NBA has two tiers, apparently. One is going to be if you're going to be in the bubble, and those are for people who are going to have access to players up close, and they have to do a quarantine. Okay. Uh, there's another tier for people who are going to sit in the stands and everything, never have direct access to players okay. you know, face-to-face, but will have right. the Zoom and all that. I would assume most papers are going to do that because the 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 the, the requirements – of basically if you're in that immediate group that's in the bubble all the whole time or that first group you're there the whole time you and the minute you leave you're out you can't come back in even in the tier two you're gone for good so because yeah. keith already quarantined for 14 days i believe yeah. back in march yeah he did yeah, yeah. And, and you know he got tested and turned out to be negative it was the beat writer flu you know he was run down from traveling and all that but he was there that night at the wells fargo center Right. You know, when the Sixers played the Pistons and Rudy Gobert tested positive in Utah and all hell broke loose. So, um, yeah, I, you know, look, I, I'm still of the mindset that I don't begrudge anybody their decision, unless you're being a complete you-know-what about it and going around and breathing in people's faces and just flaunting, you know, I don't care. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. And I'm even more sympathetic to that line of thinking right. than most people probably are because I do think – that we're suffering a lot of damage psychologically and emotionally from not being yeah. able to live our lives. Um, yeah. You know, I see it in my six year old kid to be right. quite honest. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, it is what it is guys. And I'm not going to begrudge anybody. And if the NBA tells me, you know, you're not allowed to go, then all right. Or, or if I, you got to hit these requirements to be there, that's fine. Then I got to hit those requirements to be there. And that's the way it is. Mike, uh, the NHL, yeah hasn't announced officially, but everybody kind of knows because Bob McKenzie uh, reported out of Canada that it's going to be Toronto and Edmonton are the two two hub cities that they're going to use for the the Stanley Cup playoffs. And this is after it appeared Vegas was lock, stock, and barrel to get the Western Conference. Um, Should we read anything into that about what the NHL is thinking maybe the health situation in the United States is where it's going at this point. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, Kev. I mean, I would think Las Vegas, you know, up until the last couple of weeks, you know, who know who knew, like I would have thought like Arizona and the arid hot weather would have been, you know, conducive to the virus, not spreading. And it turns out it's spreading all over the place. Um, you know, I don't know. I think maybe the NHL wants to reestablish itself. It sounds silly to say, but like reestablish itself in Canada, make Canada the hubs, um, you know, for this experiment with the virus. I, I really don't know. I mean, Toronto is a great city. Uh, it's not like anybody's going to get to see much of it, I guess. I, right. I mean, I don't know how they're, how this is all going to work. Edmonton is Edmonton has a lot of connections apparently between the new arena and the hotels. So there's a lot of, well, there you go. That yeah. And Toronto's it. got hotels right around, you know, Some the Scotia Maple Bank. Leafs arena right. too. So would, would the flyers go to Edmonton then? Would they send no. the East teams? West? Apparently they have decided to send the East, uh, keep the East teams East. There was a report oh, last okay. week that they okay. would, send the east-west and the west-east, but I think for television purposes, they feel like it's better this way. And the other thing, too, is Toronto, both those cities have other facilities that they can, in theory, hold games at the same time. One at Scotiabank, one maybe at... Uh, yeah, you uh, can't, can't do that at Arizona, you know, no. or in Las Vegas. You, got one, you, have, you don't have you a have lot one of arena. Uh, ice rinks in Las Vegas. Yeah. Mike Silski joining us here on Working the Beat. All right. Um, what do you think the odds are these leagues actually get off the ground? I think they're pretty good that they'll get off the ground. Or, I, or finish. I don't How think about finish? <laughs> Sorry? How about finish? 
No, not finishing. Who knows? Finishing is 50, 50 at best. I think, um, because who knows, like, you know, I mean, there, there has been so much, you want to say misinformation, but you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. We you know, early on, we weren't supposed to wear masks. Now we're absolutely supposed to wear masks. You know, we should have been wearing masks all along. I, I, I don't know, man. Like <laughs> I, I, every day is something new and different. And, you know, Pennsylvania was doing really well from what I understood. And yet right. the governor announced like, okay, now everybody should go wear masks again. Like, okay, well, is what happening in Arizona and Texas and Florida have that direct an impact on Pennsylvania? I don't know. Like, no, they all went to the Jersey shore and got sick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess so. <laughs> it, Mike, that to me is the worst case scenario for any of these, any sport, except maybe football. If, if it finished, if you don't finish, if you go through all of this to start and for whatever the reasons you got to pull the plug at some point without an ending, that to me is just going to be worse than almost when the country stopped in March. Yeah, I I agree with you, Mike. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know what you do in that situation. Like you just, you just have a whole year just wiped out. Um, you know, and there are so many repercussions for that, you know, financially for these franchises and for these sports and for the people who work for them, um, for the people who cover them, you know, for the networks, for the papers, for the websites, all of that. I mean, it's, I don't know, man, this is, a, this is, you know, the old, uh, you know, the old president Obama line, it's above my pay grade. It's way above my pay grade. Mike, so yeah, yeah, Mike, yeah we're all dealing with it. Yeah. In yeah. Some, I mean, it's like somebody like me. No, no. I can honestly say, you know, I can sit here and talk with you and Kevin, but it's not really affecting me, but I know it's affecting you, Mike, and I know it's affecting all your colleagues, and it probably affects people, and Kevin's talking about this a lot, people we don't even think of, you know, that are getting infected, affected by all of this, and, you know, they're, they're just kind of forgotten in this. Well, yeah. um, but they're the ones who it probably really hurts the most. Look at the situation with the minor leagues. I mean, you know. Yeah. I mean, you already were looking at contraction on some form with baseball in the minor leagues. And now you're looking maybe throwing 15, 20 franchises that may not survive this. And that, I think, is a big part. And let's switch to baseball then. Because let's go. Let me go to the Matt Clintack press conference from the other day. And Matt Clintack talking about the economics of the game and how it will tie into a potential contract offer to JT Real Muto kind of backing a little bit off on hell yeah we're gonna go get this and and you know I, he's right to let a market develop and not pay I heard Scott Lauber today on a on a 94 WIP, or WIP yeah. say that pretty much you don't pay January gas prices now if you're asking for, you know if prices are a dollar less a gallon but is there a risk with the Phillies and make being too cute here with real Muto? Kev, I don't think so, man. I mean, because for all the reasons we just were discussing, like you don't know how much money they're going to have available. You don't know what the, what the tentacles and the repercussions and ripples of this are yet. Um, like we just said, like, suppose, um, suppose the season doesn't get finished, right? Like one right. of the presumptions that's kind of baked into to resuming all these games is TV ratings are going to be at the yin yang and that advertising dollars will pour into these, you know, to NBC Sports Philadelphia, which has a partnership with the Phillies, and ESPN, which, 
is basically hosting the NBA in Orlando. Yeah. Um, well, if the games stop, what then? You know, where where's that? Where, you know, how does that affect a team's ability to sign a player like a real Muto? Um, you know, there there is. I understood, for instance, in the labor impasse in baseball between the players and the owners, feeling like you know the owners have more to give here, and they did. But there's, this is still a business, and it's not just billionaire reaches into his pocket and takes out more money. Businesses don't operate that way. They need revenue coming in. They need to have it. You know, the, the value of a particular business is only that value if the guy, if the, if the owner sells it. Um, so, you know, getting back to JT Real Muto, who knows what it's going to cost and who knows what kind of money that and, and and the Phillies would have available. Let's say they play 60 games or maybe the Phillies play more than 60, but let's say Real Muto has a really, really good year, you know, which I'm sure all Philly fans are hoping he does. You know, and he and he once again proves that he's one of the best catchers, if not the best catcher in baseball. He ain't going to come down to what he wants either. Right. You know, he's going to say, "Hey, I'm I'm the best catcher. This is my one time to make a lot of money." Um, I just have a bad feeling about this that I I think it's going to work against the Phillies somehow because of the stance that Clintac. And I'm not saying he's wrong. I, I get everything you said, Mike, but it just seems like this should have been. He should be here. You gave up one of your better pitching prospects to get him, whatever. He's, he's, everybody says how good he is in the clubhouse on the field. Just get him here for the next three, four, five years if you can. Well, the other thing, too, is the fact that as much as we go to Matt Clentak on this stuff, it's not going to be John Matt Clentak's call. It's yeah, going to be John right. Middleton's yeah, call. Right. So will John Middleton, who may be forced to, and if you take the nightmare scenario, maybe forced to decide whether he has to cut some jobs this year. Okay, I mean, you know, if they're not going to have revenue coming in, if they don't get the playoff revenue, which is where baseball's bulk of its playoff uh, national TV money comes from, then he's going to have to make it. It would look awful bad for him to give five and one twenty five to JT Real Muto at the same time he's sending a forty five thousand dollar ticket office guy out the door. So I get that there's a little bit of a there's a there's a give and take here. I, I my only argument is I thought Clentac didn't have to remind everybody of the give and take. You know, there's yeah, but we get we get caught up in that. I know I get so it. much about what people say and the way they say it. It do, mm-hmm. it doesn't change the fact that that the reality is what the reality is, and the fact that fans around here like to be stroked that shouldn't have anything to do with it. Like should Matt Clentac sh- you know have blown sunshine of people's you know what's yeah maybe he should have. But that doesn't change the reality of nobody knows what's going to happen here. All right. So you were on the Brett Brown call today. I was. Uh, how many How many main accents did you have running through your head? Well, the funniest part of it was that, uh, you know, they went from questioner to questioner. And finally they went to and, – and generally every person who got on the call, you know, the Zoom call said, hey, Brett, thanks for doing this. And Brett was on it for an hour. So, you know, thank goodness for Brett. He's very generous with his time. But like seven or eight calls in, maybe 10 calls in, Howard Eskin got on and said, oh. hey, Brett, I- I'm not going to waste your time by thanking you for being on the call. And then Howard proceeded to talk for another five to 10 minutes. <laughs> so, I, you know, no, I got, on, I got really? on the message thing and just kind of said, you know, Good thing you're not here to waste everybody's time, Howard. LOL. So I'm, I'm sure um, Howard loved that. That for joke. me was the highlight of of the call today. Eskin still had that really weird beard going. 
Yeah, you know, he looks like he made a reference to it, and it's not a bad reference. He looks like Tom Hanks about two thirds of the way through Castaway. <laughs> you know, he he needed a volleyball on a raft. I have made fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, you know the great thing Sorry. about this so all these people like keep saying, "Well, if this happens and this happens, the Sixers can make a run." And one of the things that has to happen is Joel Embiid has to be in shape. Are you kidding me? We do we think, and I'm not saying he won't play well. I'm not saying you know, but do we really think that in the four months he's been gone, Joel's staying in shape? I, I mean, like, how much do I have to stretch my imagination? That's like saying that Ben's going to take four jumpers the first game they come back because he's been working on it. I mean, really. We know what the Sixers are. We know when they play really well, they're they're pretty good. Really? They've got talent. Um, and when they don't, they can lose to almost anybody. So, you know, but but th- this whole Joel thing just has me. I can't wait till the first time he's gassed after three trips up the court. You know, it, it's you know it, I know it, we all know it. You sound you're like Bob Dole, Mike. You know it, I know I, it, I, the American people know just it. Just put a pen and in I your hand you, and I, Joel might be look. He might be Just a 25, right 12 guy in the playoffs, and they might go really far. I, I'm not, but don't tell me he's going to be in shape when he's never been in shape in his life. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, look, you know, Brett. Brett was very much. Uh, he talked an awful lot about the concept of team and the idea that you know, through the 65 games the Sixers have played, they only have their regular starting lineup for 19 mm-hmm. of those games. Sure. Uh, they had injuries. They had you know, all the upheaval in the offseason, all of that stuff. Um, and so he really accented that in his comments, this idea of, like, maybe being in the bubble and having to go through all of this will bring guys together and there'll be some kind of connection and, and you really want to, you know, they'll come together in a way that they hadn't come together all year. I'm sure that's part of it. Um, but, I mean, honestly, assuming everything goes according to plan, assuming Joel's in shape and Ben's in shape and, and everything is equal, um, they have to change their starting lineup. You know, they, they just do. Um, I would move Simmons out of point guard. I'd put him at the four spot. I put it, I would put Al Horford on the bench. Um, and they were leaning toward that, doing that anyway, come the, uh, once the pandemic hit. Um, you know, Simmons had been out of the lineup with the bad. Mike? Oh, no. Very well. oh there I would go. stick with Shake Man because he, can sh- he can, because he can shoot. He can shoot. And uh, they need that. But and, I thought Ben didn't want to be a four, Mike. Well, I don't I think mean, they have a choice here. I mean, they really don't. And Ben plays well when he's a four or five, and Joel's right. out of the lineup. So have him be a different kind of four. I mean, that's the challenge for Brett, right? He's got to figure out how to make this work. And if right. you have if you have Milton, Richardson, and Harris as three of your starting five, you can at least space the floor a little bit better. I mean, Milton's shooting 45% from three. He shot 60% in nine games. Four, but if Ben's a four playing closer to the basket, doesn't that mean Joel can't play close to close to the basket as you might want him to? You can put one. Can't you put one one up high, one down low, and you know? Yeah, but I don't want Joel up high shooting eight threes. I, I don't need him up. I don't need him up high. I can I can put him. Yeah. I'm talking like you know Foul the elbow line. maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. This this sounds ghoulish to ask in the middle of a pandemic, but and the fact that his team hasn't played in three and a half months. Um, but is Brett coaching for his job in Orlando, you think? Or have have we gone past that? Is Brett 
back here no matter what whenever they start 2021? I really think it's unfair for any team in any pro sport, at least in the NBA and the NHL and in Major League Baseball, to judge a coach or manager based on this situation. I really do. Unless he does something so, you know, he puts his own players at risk or his own personnel at risk. I mean, you know, I was, again, I was saying this to somebody today, like the great mystery and fun and test of the Philly season was going to be how much of a difference does a manager and a pitching coach make? Right. And that's totally out the window because through 60 yeah. games last year, you'd have thrown a, a ticker tape parade for Gabe Kapler. Right. I mean, they yeah. were, they were in the playoffs. They were in first place or at least close to it. Um, but they're not going to play 160. They didn't play hundred. They played 162 games last year. They're not going to play 162 this year. Um, and I think that goes for Brett too. I think if they, you know, if you fire Brett Brown based on these circumstances, the Sixers not performing well in these circumstances, mm-hmm. but, we should have fired him a long time ago. But Mike, given what happened in the first 65 games, and, I, and like you said, only 19 of them, did they have, you know, the team they thought they were going to have. If they were to lose in their first playoff series, you know, whoever that would be to, Indiana, Boston, uh, Miami, Miami, right. Yeah, whomever they might play, you know, might you not sit there and go, he's been here seven years. They didn't look good for the 65 games for whatever reason. Maybe there was extenuating reasons. And now we lost in the first round of the playoffs. So technically we took a step back, even though, like you said, you, you can't really view it as that. I still think there's a chance under those circumstances. I'm not saying I would do it. But I'm saying I think under those circumstances, maybe. And, and, if, and, I, and I don't think – I agree with you. I, I think I would bring him back and then just see what happens next season, maybe give him a short leash, whatever you're going to do. But I think there's still that minor, minor possibility if that were to happen like that. I, I see your point, Mike, and I understand totally understand where you're coming from, and I, think, I do think that is a possibility. The question then that the Sixers have to ask themselves – is a who are you getting to replace Brett? Right, sure. Is he an obvious upgrade? And B, is that coach going to be willing to take the bullets publicly that Brett has been willing to take on behalf of this organization since yeah. he got here? That is a very underrated part of his job, and it's one yeah. that he, it's been the best thing he's done in some ways. Is that yeah. Elton Brand doesn't have to answer a whole lot of questions. Josh Harris, you know, when I, I go back to this time and time again. But, but to me, it's a good example of this. When the whole Daryl Morey situation happened last fall, when he sent out that tweet, you know, supporting Hong Kong and the NBA and China came down on him like a ton of bricks, I contacted the Sixers that night. It was a Sunday night. The Sixers were going to open their exhibition season against the Chinese professional team on Tuesday. I contacted the Sixers and said, I'm coming to practice tomorrow to write about this situation. I think you guys should boycott the game against this Chinese professional team in support of Maury. And I'm hoping that you guys will make some of your, your big people available, whether it's Josh Harris, Scott O'Neill, Elton Brand, somebody like that. They didn't, they made Brett available. Yeah. So if whoever you get to replace him, he better be willing to do that. He better be willing to speak about geopolitical situations that infringe yeah. on the NBA because it sure doesn't look like Elton Brand, Scott O'Neill and Josh Harris want to weigh in on those things. I hear you, yeah, Mike. I hear you. Um, I hear you, Mike. I hear you. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I'm not a political scholar. You know, um, <laughs> let me get to two articles you wrote. You talked about baseball um, a couple weeks ago and how incredibly 
tedious it has become to watch the product and how it's not enjoyable for any game that you're not covering um at this point one what kind of feedback did you were you surprised by the feedback you got because you had some baseball people lifelong baseball people who kind of agreed with you at that point yeah yeah, i was uh, just to answer that question first kevin i was surprised that i got uh as much positive feedback as i did in fact the, the feedback in the article was overwhelmingly positive now having said that the average email I got on that column began exactly the same way. Dear Mike, I am a blank, blank year old man who has been a baseball fan for blank, blank years. Mm -hmm. And the first blank, blank was generally at least 50 years old. And the second blank, blank was generally at least 40 years as a baseball fan. But I did get text messages and, and feedback from people within baseball who agreed with me. Um, so that answers your question. I was surprised at that. I thought I would get more pushback from people saying the game is great. You're an old codger. Go away. Did you get any of that? A little bit, a little bit, not, not too much though. Really not too much. Do you think the game is salvageable right now as a spectator sport that could grow? I think you would have to take some drastic measures. Um, I think you would have to put in the, I think you'd have to outlaw shifts for starters. Um, I think I, I, I've not always felt that way, but I do think that that would help for starters. Um, I think you've, you've got to have a rethinking of exploiting stagnant systems. That was the whole pretext and pretense for what led us to this point. And, and I totally get it. Like managers and general managers and smart people in the game saw where they could grab an incremental advantage and they took it. The problem is, is that everybody started to see the same incremental advantage and viewing baseball in the same way. So in the classic example that I use, top of the inning, hitter leads off with a double. The next batter, you and I and Mike and every baseball fan who watched the game, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even in the 90s, was conditioned to think that that hitter was supposed to try to hit the ball to the right side of the infield to get the runner over to third base with one out. Now, I understand mathematically and, and from a productivity standpoint that it's probably better to have that guy swing away and try to hit a home run or try to get a base hit or try to walk and prolong the inning. I understand that that's better for his team in, 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 the, in the main, in the aggregate. But in that moment, just hit the ball to the right side of the infield, man, and keep this thing moving. Because who knows, the ball may go through the infield and it's a base hit. The second baseman may juggle it. Something might happen. The ball's in play and the game is moving. And that aspect of it is gone. That aspect of it that this game is just naturally played at a certain clip and a certain pace. The batter doesn't step out after every pitch. The the pitcher doesn't take a minute and a half or 30 seconds to throw each pitch. Um, Stolen bases, batters choking up on the bat, a pitcher going for a shutout and staying in the game into the ninth inning because that's just what you do. You let a guy finish his own game. All those aspects of the sport that used to be common lent drama to the sport that mm-hmm. don't ex- that doesn't exist anymore. And until unless you mandate that, I don't know how you get back to it. Mike? Yeah, I, I mean, baseball was my first sport. You know, it's probably most of us when we were growing up, that was the one we got into first. But it's just, and, and I, yeah, I, it is hard to watch. And I do, 
I don't mind that the game takes three and a half hours if it's worth watching. I'm okay with that. Like I think everybody gets too much into the time it takes. Part of the reason is because games don't get over till late, and I get all that. But I just don't know how you fix it without fundamentally changing the game. Like I don't want gimmicks in the game. I don't want a rule that a pitcher has to bat pitch to three batters or something, or you know, just put the runner on second in the extra innings. I understand they're probably only doing that for this year, but uh, I, don't I just know think if it's the just game has gotten year, to the point where it's all strikeouts and home runs, basically. That's what they're taught. Swing for defenses. You're going to strike out a lot. It's okay. And I just see it hard to go back to what you were talking about, Mike, and the things that we kind of thought were what made the game the game. And I personally believe that it's the packaging, too. And in addition to what Mike's saying, I think if you look at it, um, the way the sport is covered by its rights holders, and – this is part of the analytic shift. They're feeding so much uh, numbers, so many different stats, so many different things that I think, quite frankly, it's tr- it's math overload in a lot of ways. You know, people sit down to relax. People want to watch. People want to have you. Have you read a Murphy column? <laughs> and I don't even. I'm not knocking Dave. No, he's doing. But I don't understand what half of those things, not necessarily mean, but what like. Like, oh, I grew up RBIs, home runs, hits, runs, scored. Okay. And, and there's that was a good there's, enough for me. Mike, there's a place for the new there's a place for new stats, but I think when you're bombarded with them with spin yep. rates and K zones launch and angles. Launch angles and all that. And, and it just becomes too much. Yeah, ask Reese Hoskins about launch angles. I think I think it just becomes too much, and I think that it's like trying to have vegetables for dinner. It just, it, at a point, you back off. Am I wrong, Mike? No, I, th- I think there were simpler, and it, it sounds silly to say, um, and it makes me sound old, but there were simpler things about the game that drew people to the game. For instance. Strategy. Strat- teams were built mm-hmm. to their ballparks. The right. Cardinals were built around speed because they played a Bush Stadium, which was a big part. Kansas City Royals. The Royals were the same way. Same the, thing. The Dodgers and Giants were built around pitching. The Yankees and Red Sox were built around pounding the ball. Now, mm-hmm. every no no team pays attention to that stuff, at least not as much attention as they used to. And those sorts of variety, that, that sort of variety is what made the game really cool. Like, take another example. And again, I'm going way back in time. But the reason that the 93 Phillies captured everybody's attention and, and people love them, even though they were a bunch of dirt balls and Lenny Dykstra might be the worst human being to ever be involved in Major League Baseball and, you know, who knows what kind of special vitamins they were all taking, was that they came out of nowhere. Like, no, nobody expected that at all. And what we've learned over time, if you crunch the numbers, is that most teams lose their any kind of chance of um, making a big playoff run by the middle of June. And teams have now figured out or decided that, well, rather than like roll the dice and just sign a bunch of veteran players and try to take a shot, we'll just break it down and build it back up again and rebuild. Yeah. And I, and I get that. I understand it, but it takes some of the magic out of the game. It and what does. was the great thing about the 93 team? They took pitches, they worked pitchers. They, you know, they, they, they were smart before that became, you know, on base percentage, all that kind of crap, but that's what they basically did. Yeah. yeah. They were smart hitters. Yeah, I, I think what we're talking about here, guys, is a distinction between what makes the game entertaining and what makes 
what, what components a team needs to have to win. And what we're talking about is a change in a lot of, for a lot of people in the way they view the game. The, the rise of fantasy sports and daily fantasy sports uh. has, has allowed, has encouraged people to watch the game as if they were a general manager. And we're all evaluating their, you know, these teams' decisions based on whether we would be the general manager and would we make that decision in and of its, you know, in and of itself in the context of the broader season. Most people don't watch games that way. Like I, I go back to like my 60-year-old aunt who just wanted to know what was Chase Utley like? What's Jimmy Rollins like? You know, when they talk to you, how are they? What do they say? And there are hundreds of thousands of baseball player, baseball fans who are like that. And you, you can't forget them either. And you, you can't necessarily make them th- sit through a three and a half hour slug fest where you're just like, Oh my God, we're in the third inning and the game's two hours long already. Yeah. Mike. Sils- yeah. Mike. Sils- and, and, and nobody knows. You said your aunt only wanted to know what nobody knows who most of these players are anymore. Right. When you, when you really get down to it. So let's break down the minor league system. Let's just absolutely crush the minor league system and take it away from small towns where people may get, you know, to know these players and decide to follow them. It's so stupid. Speaking of which, um, you wrote a column about Bill Belichick, and this is before, I believe, Bill decided. Was it before he signed um, Cam Newton? No, it was after he signed After he signed Cam Newton. The days blend into each other. How will that relationship work? I think it'll be fine. I think he Belichick is who Belichick is. These are the, these are the ground rules. This is who I am. You're either on board or you're not. And um, you know, I I relate an anecdote from Ian O'Connor's terrific biography of Belichick about the first day of practice before the 2007 season, when they went undefeated and then lost in the Super Bowl. Um, Randy Moss and Dante Stallworth are sitting next to each other in the team meeting and Belichick is going over film and he is just crushing Tom Brady just absolutely killing him. And Moss and Stallworth look at each other and say, holy bleep, if he can say this about Tom Brady with his three rings, what is he going to say about us if we mess up? And I think Cam Newton better be ready for that, Um, you know, because I don't think Belichick is going to change. And, you know, I think it's a smart move. You sign him for a little bit more than a million dollars in in base salary, incentivize the deal. If it works out, great. If not, okay, well, you still have Jared Stidham then. Um, who may or may not work out, but you're, you know, this is what Belichick does. And, um, you know, he's done this before with wide receivers and tight ends and defensive players. Rodney Harrison was that kind of guy. He was a cast off from the chargers. So, uh, you know, like I said, in the column, like I felt good about it, knowing that Bill Belichick is not changing who Bill Belichick ain't putting a runner on second base to start the 10th mm, inning. Right. He's not right. having his players put social justice messaging on the back of their jerseys. Mm. He is being exactly who he's always been, and God bless him for and, it because it makes me feel normal again. And everybody talks about how Brady wants to prove something, and I don't doubt that at all. So does his I old think, coach. I, I think exactly. And, I, and I'm not, maybe and Brady's he's got an easier road than Brady to does. be able to prove something because of the team he's going to. I don't know. I, I don't know which guy is better equipped to do well this season. We'll find out, I guess. But I would never underestimate Bill Belichick. They may go 6-10 and 10 this year, for all the hell I know. But I would not underestimate. He's going to run around all training camp telling his team the Bills are the favorites. They mm-hmm. made the Bills the favorites. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I mean, will we be shocked if the Patriots win 10 or 11 games this year? No. Really? No. Well, part of it is, too, you still have two rebuilding teams in the Dolphins and the Jets that you get to play four times. 
they're you know the Bills have issues as well a quarterback. So to me, everybody counts them out. You're counting them out at your own risk. I mean, it, it's different than and their defense. Their defense is not bad. It's not. I mean, it wasn't bad last year. Their offense kind of struggled down the stretch because they were beat up and they didn't have a tight end weapon. Um, Mike, do you want to stick around? We're going to just throw some general topics around here if you want to. Sure. uh, With the 4th of July coming up, uh, Mike and I want to keep this a little light. Uh, One, uh, the idea that, like, the the best parts of, of being in Philadelphia on the 4th of July are the fireworks and the history that's around here. And I've always said that I think that the city doesn't really exploit its place in history well enough at this time of year to draw a lot of people in. Because, look, a lot of Philadelphians don't stick around for the 4th of July. They go to the shore, they go somewhere else. Kind of, how do you feel the city, how do you feel about this city on this holiday coming up? I think the idea of patriotism at this point feels hokey to (laughs) a lot of people, not to me, but I think to a lot of people it does. I think there at this time this year with what everything that's been going on, I think there would be severe backlash. Um, I don't think the mayor's inclined to play up patriotism in any regard. Um, You know, I, I, it's just the way I look at it. I, I, I think it would be like, why are we celebrating this country at this time? Mike. Don't you guys feel the same way? Don't you think most of Philadelphia is? Well, it, it feels like most of Philadelphia looks at it that way. I, but I'm talking, I guess, in, in previous years. I don't think that they, the fact that people here don't want to stick around for what's going on here on a normal year. Forget this year. This year is. Kevin, mm-hmm. how many people go to the Parkway? I'm just asking. I, I don't have an answer. It's, how many people go to the Parkway to hear that concert? Maybe a hundred grand. Maybe more. I mean, I would say what about that's you, pretty good, Kev. But what do you want them to? I, I don't understand. I don't if know. They get a, it just they feels get like it's a tired. But what do you want them to do? When you, you compare it to DC, when you compare it to DC or New York or Boston, it just feels. You think they get more people? Well, first of all, New York has like 10 million, 20 million more people. I mean, there, there are more people. I mean, Philadelphia, I don't know what you want them to do. Uh, uh, you, you want them to have like a, a sermon, like all day, something from like I would almost make it like a block, midnight? yeah, pretty much. Okay, well, I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm missing the point. I mean, I think they do a great job every year with doing that thing on the Parkway. Okay, some years I like it more than others because I might like who's playing more. But I mean, it seems like the people that go to have a really good time. A lot of people, I think, watch it. But a lot of people on Fourth of July, like you said, they're doing their thing. Yeah. They're having picnics. They're going to their their relatives. They're going to the shore. They're going to a family. I, I, I mean, yeah. that's always what the Fourth of July was for me. We went to Lawn Crest Lawn Crest Wreck because my aunt and uncle lived a couple blocks away, and they set we fireworks set off, and we went over there, and we had a grand old time. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, like I said, I think this year is different. I think right. if you were trying oh, yeah. to play up yeah. patriotism and the and the country's birthday this year. Um, particularly in a city like Philadelphia, they would look at you sideways. Um, But that's happened recently. That shift has happened recently. Uh, And you can argue it should have happened earlier, you know, but in years past, I think Mike's point is well taken. I think uh, unless you're going to open up the entire city and turn it into the the biggest block party ever and encourage people to go down. That's my idea. That's my idea. 
River to river fireworks, all that. I mean, you know, do you have enough police to, to handle all of that? Um, you know, is, is this a city that could handle that? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, favorite part of the 4th of July, Mike uh, Silski. Favorite part of the 4th of July. Um, just knowing that I can wake up in the morning and spend a day like sitting outside in the sun with my friends and family and having a couple beers. Sometimes there's nothing better than just a cold beer on a hot day. And uh, the 4th of July is the best weekend to do that. Mike? I just think it's the quintessential summer holiday. I mean, we have Memorial Day, and I know that's the unofficial start to summer, and Labor Day is the unofficial, it's over, and all. I always like Labor Day, actually. Myself. But to me, the 4th of July, it's America. It's the middle of the summer. The weather's usually pretty good. You're eating food. You're usually watching fireworks. And to me, it's kind of what I think America should be about at least one day a year. Fireworks, overrated, underrated. Mike Silski. I can tell you now they are overrated because they drive my two sons crazy. Um, don't like them. Don't like the loud popping noises. Um, overrated on fireworks. My, uh, uh, well, they did. They do that to my dog. Yeah. Dog. Um, we so have two dogs. He's comparing my, my kids to your dog. No, 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 no. I'm just saying it has the same impact. Um, I, I mean, I, I like fireworks uh, in certain, th- but I don't like, if I didn't have them, it wouldn't ruin my my world. Well, this year's for a, you. But if it's a red fireworks display, yeah, I'm in. I'm in. Uh, hot dog or hamburger? Selsky. Hot dog. Ah, uh, boy. Um, yeah, hot dog. But it's it's close. It's pit beef this year, Kevin. Well, no, not till the twenty first. That's when Cur- uh, that's when uh, Hagen's opening. So yeah, but it's still pit beef. <laughs> <laughs> that's our. That's going to be our new Fourth of July save. Pip, I like it. Hagen pit beef. Yeah. Yes. Um. And is there a favorite Independence Day movie? Wow. Ooh. You mean other than Independence Day? Other than Independence Day, which I'm not sure. Welcome what- to Earth. <clears throat> yeah. So, um. <laughs> let me think. Uh. Is there a favorite? That's a hard one. That's that's really tough. Um. How about, no, born go, on the fourth of, how about born on the fourth of July, Mike? Well, that's a depressing movie for it is. You know, celebrating Independence Day. Yan- um, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Nah, no. Seventeen seventy six. I'm going with uh, you know Bill Clinton Light taking down the uh, the aliens there. <laughs> um, okay, now. All right. Thanks to Mike Stelsky for joining us. Have a happy and safe holiday coming up. This has been Work of the Beat. Well, you went uptown riding in your limousine with your fine Park Avenue clothes. You had the Dom Perignon in your hand.